everyone, and good morning. Welcome to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger here on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. This is Andrew Howe filling in. Hope you're having a great start to your day. This is the Thursday, February 2nd edition of the Fort Dodge Messenger. It's brought to you here on the morning of Friday, February 3rd, TGIF. Everybody's happy it's Friday. All right, Garden awarded $2,200 grant. That's the front page, and it shows Laura Ludgate, a volunteer with the grow volunteer with the Growing Together Donation Garden, holding up a freshly picked green pepper from the garden. By the end of the 2019 growing season, the garden had produced more than 140 pounds of fresh vegetables that were donated to the Lord's Cupboard Food Pantry and the Salvation Army. We'll talk more about that story, as well as other front-page news, including Fed's lift rate by quarter point, but says inflation is easing. But before all that, though, we'll take a check of our forecast here for Fort Dodge in the northwest Iowa area. Well, you can expect for today, your Friday, partly sunny conditions with a high near 11 degrees. Windshield values, though, as low as negative 20. That's going to be because of those uh, north-northeast winds uh, during the day, up to 11 miles per hour, becoming southeast in the afternoon. And we saw some uh, patchy blowing snow over yesterday. For tonight, expect mostly clear conditions with a temperature falling to near 5 above by 8 p.m., then rising to around 13 during the remainder of the night. Wind chill values as low as negative 10. South-southeast winds gusting as high as 23 miles per hour. For your Saturday, expect mostly sunny skies with a high near 35 degrees. Saturday night, partly cloudy with low around 25. Sunday, sunny with a high near 35. Looking at next week, expect on Monday, mostly cloudy conditions, a high near 38. It's not too bad and breezy. Tuesday, partly sunny, a high near 35. Wednesday, next week, a 30% chance of snow, sunny with a high near 37. And that's your forecast here from the National Weather Service. But again, for today, your Friday, partly sunny conditions with a high near 11. As we get into the headlines, we'll start off with our headline story, Community Garden Provides Fresh Produce. That's written by Kelby Wingert. Garden awarded a $2,200 grant. A small group of local gardeners are helping feed Webster County residents in need with a community donation garden. The Webster County Growing Together Donation Garden in Fort Dodge produces hundreds of pounds of fresh, nutritious produce each year to be given to the Lord's Cupboard Food Pantry, the Salvation Army, and the Holy Trinity Parish Food Pantry. At the garden located at 4th Avenue South and 7th Street, is a product of the Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Master Gardeners Program. The Growing Together program was started in 2016 and provides communities with many grants to build and sustain these gardens across the state. The Fort Dodge Garden was started in 2019. The city of Fort Dodge donated an old city-owned garden that had fallen into disrepair and provided free water and mulch to the project. According to the ISU Extension and Outreach Office, one in eight Iowans is food insecure, which means they do not have access to sufficient food to make up a healthy diet. The Donation Garden Project is designed to increase access to fruits and vegetables, as well as provide nutrition and gardening education to individuals who are food insecure. 
Last year, the Ford Dodge Garden donated nearly 1,000 pounds of fresh produce to the local food pantries, according to master gardener and garden organizer Doug Brightman. We're meeting an important need of our community, Brightman said, and fresh produce locally grown is more nutritious than produce that than what's shipped in. Melanie Fierke, director of the Lord's Cupboard and Ford Dodge, said the food pantry is grateful for the work the gardeners do each year. We are very lucky to have a partnership with them and receive something that a lot of clients cannot purchase for themselves, she said. So to be able to come in and choose fresh produce from someone's garden is actually a blessing. Well, Brightman is joined by six master gardeners and eight community volunteers to plant, tend to, and harvest the fruits and vegetables each year. Last year, the St. Paul Lutheran Church Youth Group also volunteered. The garden will begin its fifth growing season this spring. Between the 2019 and 2022 growing seasons, the garden has produced just over a ton of fruits and vegetables. On Monday, Extension and Outreach's Agriculture and Natural Resources uh, awarded many grants for gardens in 30 counties. The $2,189 grant received by the Webster County Garden will help add more raised beds to the garden. Brightman said the master gardeners are grateful for their community partners for helping make this garden a success. Local businesses and organizations have helped by donating supplies and providing discounted services. The Donation Gardens community partners are the City of Fort Dodge, Bicer Lumber Company, Becker Florist and Garden Center, Menards and ISU Webster County Extension and Outreach. Last year, the local philanthropic organization 100 Women Who Care donated $700 to build a new garden shed, Brightman said. Other area counties receiving grants include Calhoun County, expand a wheelchair-accessible garden on-site at Opportunity Living with four additional raised garden beds that clients will plant and harvest. Produce will be donated to local food pantries. In Wright County, expand donation of gardens in uh, donation gardens in Clarion and Rowan with the help of food pantry clients, 4-Hers, Clover Kids, elementary students, and master gardeners. Food pantry clients will be encouraged to participate in five educational workshops and demonstrations, including container gardening and nutrition education. And that ends that story. Moving on now to other front page news, one we mentioned earlier. Feds lift rate by quarter point, but says inflation is easing. After that, our other front page story is a Nebraska law story. So this is a Washington, Dateline Washington story. It's from the AP. Here on the front page of the Ford Dodge Messenger, the Thursday edition. The Federal Reserve extended its fight against high inflation Wednesday by raising its key interest rate a quarter point its eighth hike since March. And the Fed signaled that even though inflation is easing, it remains high enough to require further rate hikes. At the same time, Chair Jerome Powell said at a news conference that the Fed recognizes that the pace of inflation has cooled, a signal that it could be nearing the end of its rate increases. The stock and bond markets rallied during his news conference, suggesting that they anticipate a forthcoming pause in the Fed's credit tightening. Throughout his remarks Wednesday, Powell sounded a dual message. He frequently acknowledged signs that high inflation is slowing. We can now say, I think for the first time, he said, that the disinflationary process has started. Yet he also stressed that it was too soon to declare victory over the 
worst inflation bout in four decades. We will need substantially more evidence to be confident that inflation is on a long, sustained downward path. The Fed's rate increase Wednesday, though smaller than its half-point hike in December, and the four three-quarter point hikes before that will likely raise, uh, further raise the cost of many consumer and business loans and the risk of, of a recession. In a statement, Fed officials repeated language they've used before that ongoing increases in the interest rate target range will be appropriate. That is widely interpreted to mean they will raise their benchmark rate again when they meet in March and perhaps in May as well. The Fed chair said that so far, much of the inflation slowdown reflects the prices of goods, notably gas, but also furniture, appliances, and other finished products that have benefited from an unraveling of supply chain snarls. But Powell reiterated his concern that prices for services, restaurant meals, health care, airline tickets, and the like are still surging. He has said he pays particular attention to services uh, prices because they are labor-intensive. As a result, robust wage gains can keep service prices elevated and perpetuate high inflation. The central bank's benchmark rate is now in a range of 4.5% to 4.75%, its highest level in 15 years. Powell appeared to suggest Wednesday that he foresees two additional quarter-point rate hikes. We're talking about a couple of more rate hikes to get to, uh, to that level we think is appropriately restrictive, he said, referring to rates high enough to slow the economy. Yet Wall Street investors have priced in only one more hike. Collectively, in fact, they expect the Fed to reverse course and actually cut rates by the end of the year. That optimism has helped drive stock prices up and bond yields down, easing credit and pushing in the opposite direction that the Fed would prefer. Last summer, Powell took the opportunity in a high-profile speech in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to push back against market expectations of rate cuts anytime soon. His speech hammered home the Fed's intent to keep raising rates, even if it caused pain, quote-unquote, in the form of slower growth and higher unemployment. On Wednesday, though, Powell declined an opportunity to diffuse the market's buoyant expectations. Our focus, he said, is not on short-term moves, but on sustained changes in financial markets. He noted instead that many financial gauges, like mortgage rates, are much higher than they were when the Fed began raising rates. The divide between the central bank and financial markets is important because rate hikes need to work through markets to affect the economy. The Fed directly controls its key short-term rate, but it has only indirect control over borrowing rates that people and businesses actually pay for mortgages, corporate bonds, auto loans, and many others. The consequences can be seen in housing. The average fixed rate on a 30-year mortgage soared after the Fed first began hiking rates. Eventually, it topped 7%, more than twice where it had stood before the hiking began. Yet since the fall, the average mortgage rate has eased to 6.13% or 6.13%, the lowest level since September. And while home sales fell further in December, a measure of signed contracts to buy homes actually rose. That suggested that lower rates might be drawing some home buyers back to the market. On Wednesday, Powell brushed aside any concern that the Fed will end up tightening credit too much and trigger a recession. 
I still think there is a path to getting inflation down to 2%, the Fed's target level, without a significant economic decline or significant increase in unemployment, he said. The U.S. inflation slowdown suggests that the Fed's rate hikes have started to achieve their goal, but inflation is still far above the central bank's 2% target. The risk is that with some sectors of the economy weakening, ever higher higher borrowing costs could tip the economy into a downturn later this year. Retail sales, for example, have fallen for two straight months, suggesting that consumers are becoming more cautious about spending. Manufacturing output has fallen for two months. On the other hand, the nation's job market, the most important pillar of the economy, remains strong, with the unemployment rate at a 53-year low at 3.5%. Our third and final front-page story is about Nebraska. Hundreds showed Nebraska heartbeat abortion ban hearing. This is a Dateline Lincoln, Nebraska. It's an AP story. Hundreds of people crowded the halls of the Nebraska State Capitol on Wednesday for a committee hearing on the heartbeat bill, which would outlaw abortion at a point before many women even know they're pregnant. The bill would ban abortions once cardiac activity can be detected in an embryo, which is generally around the sixth week of pregnancy. This bill is about one thing, protecting babies with beating hearts from elective abortion. Republican Senator Joni Albrecht of Thurston told the legislature's Health and Human Services Committee to kick off testimony on her bill Wednesday that drew scores of banned supporters, along with hundreds of opponents. Lawmakers opposed to the ban have already attempted to throw up roadblocks to thwart the measure. Several attended a protest held at the Capitol Rotunda just before Wednesday's hearing that drew around 300 people opposed to the ban, including medical professionals and clergy. Democratic Senator Megan Hunt of Omaha, who has been an outspoken opponent of restricting abortion rights, urged the crowd to continue to show up for each phase of the bill. We need constant, prolonged, righteous outrage. They need to hear your energy, Hunt said, drawing a shout of, we'll never stop, from someone in the crowd, followed by a roaring chant of no more bans. Hunt also led a push to move the bill out of the conservative-leaning HHS committee, where it is almost certain to be advanced, and into the more politically balanced Judiciary Committee. She and other lawmakers argued that because the proposal would criminalize most abortions, it should be heard by the Judiciary Committee. But that effort failed in a vote on the legislative floor last week, with backers of the ban countering that the bill does not include criminal penalties for women who receive abortions or doctors who perform them. Instead, it would subject doctors who perform outlawed abortions to professional discipline, which could include losing their medical licenses. While the bill doesn't list criminal penalties, it would make doctors vulnerable to criminal charges under existing state law. Several lawmakers said, said, That law makes it a felony to perform an abortion not allowed under state law. I think a prosecutor and potentially a jury could find that if you've performed an abortion that's not in compliance with medical practice, enough so to lose your license, then you're also in violation of that criminal law, Democratic Senator John Kavanaugh, an attorney from Omaha, said. He pointed to an open case in Norfolk in which prosecutors charged a 41-year-old woman with a felony for helping her 17-year-old daughter end her pregnancy at 24 weeks by supplying her with pills to induce an abortion. They will look at the statute and find ways to prosecute, Kavanaugh said. 
Among those warily watching the latest attempt to effectively ban abortion in the, the red state is Casey Ware, age 35 of Omaha, who detailed a day before the hearing how she sought an abortion after becoming pregnant at 16 by a man twice her age who had raped her repeatedly starting when she was 15. She would not have been able to get an abortion under current the current proposed ban, she said, because she didn't discover she was pregnant until well after six weeks of gestation. I would have done almost anything to end that pregnancy, Ware said, even if it meant endangering her life to do so. I could have died. What I know is an abortion ban won't end abortions. It's only going to end safe abortions. If enacted, Nebraska would join several other states that have passed similar cardiac activity abortion bans, including Georgia, Ohio, Iowa, South Carolina, and Tennessee. But Nebraska, which in 2010 became the first state to ban abortions after the 20th week of pregnancy, has recently struggled to enact tighter abortion restrictions. Well, on page two of the Fort Dodge Messenger for Thursday, February 2nd, it shows Alex Tiernan of St. Edmund helping to package food to send overseas for the Feed Just One, then Feed Just One, International Food Relief Program on Wednesday inside Gail's Gym. The headline of this photo essay is St. Edmund Packs Meals. It also shows Kevin O'Connor of St. Edmund sealing a bag of ingredients Wednesday during the then Feed Just One International Food Relief Program meal packing effort. It also shows Sidney Lowry of St. Edmund prepping to scoop up some ingredients during the event. On this date in history, which if you're listening to this on Friday morning, it would be yesterday, February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day, the 33rd day of 2023. There are 332 days left in the year. On February 2nd, 1990, in a dramatic concession to South Africa's black majority, President F.W. de Klerk lifted a ban on the African National Congress and promised to free Nelson Mandela. On this date in 1943, February 2nd, uh, the remainder of the Nazi forces from the Battle of Stalingrad surrendered in a major victory for the Soviets in World War II. In 1948, President Harry S. Truman sent a 10-point civil rights program to Congress, where the proposals ran into fierce opposition from Southern lawmakers. Ten years ago, Coach Bill Parcells, Warren Sapp, Chris Carter, Jonathan Ogden, and Larry Allen were elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Five years ago, at the sentencing hearing in Michigan for former sports doctor Larry Nassar, a distraught father of three girls who had been sexually abused tried to attack Nassar before being tackled by sheriff's deputies and hauled out of court. Randall Margraves later apologized. The judge said there was no way she would fine him or send him to jail for trying to attack Nassar. Understandable. One year ago, four men were charged with being part of the drug distribution crew that supplied a deadly mix of narcotics to actor Michael K. Williams of The Wire, who had overdosed five months earlier. Well, that takes care of everything on page two, except for this. Actually, two things. From our files, it shows a picture from February 2008, where Fort Dodge City Manager David Fierke goes over one of the charts explaining the Envision 2030 master plan to Dick Brower during a reception held to unveil the plan at the Blandon Memorial Art Museum. All the way back in 2008. That's a long time ago. Hard to believe. What was that? What was that? 15 years ago? Crazy. In the Messenger poll this week's question, have you started working on your income taxes yet? 
And you can vote at www.messengernews.net. The Messenger poll is updated weekly. Answers and new questions will be published on Saturdays. In our briefs section, as we get page three started off, Eggs and Issues rescheduled for Saturday. Eggs and Issues Legislative Forum has been rescheduled for 8.30 to 10 a.m. Saturday at the BHS Auditorium on the Iowa Central Community College campus. In our police logs, one domestic call was reported on Monday. A suspicious vehicle was reported in the 700 block of 7th Avenue North. What else do we have in here? Criminal mischief was reported in the 800 block of North 25th Street. Theft was reported in the 3000 block of 1st Avenue South. A car accident was reported at Lane Sun Avenue and Kenyon Road. And then an unknown problem was reported in the 3300 block of 5th Avenue South. On Tuesday, one domestic call was reported. Also, a suspicious person was reported in the 1100 block of 3rd Avenue Northwest. Water problems were reported near 10th Avenue South and South 32nd Street. A car accident was reported in the 1900 block of 2nd Avenue South. A car accident was reported at 2nd Avenue South and South 18th Street. An unknown problem was reported in the 200 block of South 7th Street. Also, a theft was reported in the 2900 block of 1st Avenue South. A suspicious person was reported near Laneson Avenue and Highway 20. If you're illegally dumping on the uh, 2600 block of 5th Avenue South, cut it out because uh, they're calling it in now. Also, a car accident was reported on Kenyon Road. We have uh, some magistrate court news in Webster County. Driving while license revoked, we have Caitlin Christine Friesith, age 18, of 506 3rd Street Northwest. Preliminary hearing waived. We have, that's, this is from Tuesday. Failure to obey a traffic control device, Bryce Edward Alexander, age 60, of 1706 13th Avenue Southwest. There was a trial February 16th for running a red light. Okay. We have a forgery. Wayne Alexander Kirschmeyer, age 35, of 2023 4th Avenue North. Preliminary hearing is on February 20th. We have third-degree theft. Karen K. Danielson, age 55, of Webster City. Further proceedings to be scheduled. Driving while barred. Sean Dean Taylor, age 41, 403 4th Street Northwest. Preliminary hearing is on February 20th. We have eluding. Sean Dean Taylor, age 41. Preliminary hearing also on February 20th. And that takes care of all that magistrate news, or at least all that I'm going to bring you for today. I'm not going through all of them. We have uh, some Iowa Central Dean's List grantees here from uh, Webster City. Actually, I'm going to read this to you first. Iowa Central Community College has released its Dean's List and President's List for the fall semester. To be named to the dean's list, a student must earn at least a 3.5 grade point average. To be named to the president's list, a student must earn a 4.0 grade average. From Dakota City, we have Haley Cox, Zachary Douglas, Peyton Kramer. From Clarion, Uredia, Almanza Chavez, Melissa Blevins, Angel Carrillo, Kevin Claybaugh, Ulysses 
Friaz, Sydney, Frizel, Ben. From Eagle Grove, we have Havana Anderson, Mar- Marissa Beecher, Josu Castro, Aroche, Connor Christopher, Thaddeus Cook, Monica Covington. From Humboldt, Clara Borman, Maggie Cowan, Jonathan Hansen, Draven Hemelrick, Grace Miner, Haley Meyer, McKenna Nave, Kale Newell, Morgan Olson. From Lake City, we have McKelsey Gordon, Cameron Holst, and Ethan Myers. From Lawrence, we have Alexander Blaise, Emily Harold, and Hannah Hubble. From Pilot Mound, we have Vitris Scott. From Pocahontas, Caitlin Schuler and Joseph Walker. In the president's list, these are the kids who did real good. From Badger, we have Kennedy Bailey, Sydney Gebbers, Sylvia Heldorfer. From Bancroft, we have Gabrielle Kelly. From Barnum, we have Paige Condon. From Bode, we have Gavin Hayden Wyatt Strait. From Clarion, we have Victor Arona. Adeline Ackleson, Austin Burrell, Lauren Brooks, Nicholas Carpenter, Aiden Cross, Caleb Curry, Peyton DeCoster, Abigail Dorn, Scott Lehman, Ellie Muse, Olivia Olson, J. Lou, Salgado, Barcinez, Courtney Studer, Kennedy Tursa, Karina Zenon Callis. All right. Good job, gang. Good job. If you know any of those people, give them a pat on the back and tell them you're proud. You're real proud. All right, we are here uh, almost to the point of obituaries, which we'll get to here shortly. One more short story before we do. On page five, this is an AP story. FBI searches Biden's vacation home and finds no classified documents. Dateline, Washington. The FBI searched Joe Biden's vacation home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, on Wednesday without turning up any classified documents, the latest turn in an extraordinary series of searches of his and his predecessor's properties. Agents did take some handwritten notes and other materials relating to Biden's time as vice president for review, just as they had when they searched his Wilmington home last month where they also found classified items. Investigators searched his former office at a Washington think tank that bears his name in November, but it isn't clear whether they took anything. The Biden searches conducted with his blessing have come as investigators work to determine how classified information from his time as a senator and vice president came to wind up in his home and former office, and whether any mishandling involved criminal intent or was merely a mistake in a city where unauthorized treatment of classified documents is not unheard of. Law enforcement searches of property are a routine part of criminal probes, but there is nothing ordinary about the FBI scouring a sitting president's home, even as Biden and his aides have sought to contrast his actions with those of his predecessor. All right, now we take on the obituaries and tell you that you're listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is about our halfway point in this broadcast. Here on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, IRIS. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader today. My name is Andrew Haupt filling in. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, then please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Very sad, starting off here, 
with Parker Gill Copper, age three months. Parker Gill Copper, the son of Chance Gill and Shasta Joe Masters Copper, was born October 16th, 2022 in Des Moines, Iowa. He went to be with Jesus in Heaven on Sunday, January 29th, 2023 at Unity Point Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Parker was the joy of his parents and his sister's lives and will always be in their hearts. He was preceded in death by his great-grandparents, Gilbert and Colleen Copper, Melvin and Georgia Estland, and Terry Masters, great-uncles T.A. Masters, John Harsh, and Rodney Estland. Survivors include his parents, Chance and Shasta Copper, and his sister, Stony Copper, all of Leon, Iowa, grandparents Kevin Copper and companion Cindy Rail of Burnside, Iowa, Libby Estland of Patton, Iowa, and Todd and Barb Masters of Leon. Great-grandparents Larry and Janelle Allen of Carson, Iowa, Connie Moore of Osceola, Iowa, and Charlotte Masters of Iowa. Aunts and uncles Miley and Craig Davis of Dayton, Iowa, Natasha Taylor and companion Jeremy Gearman of Dayton, Colden Bethel of Gallery, Iowa, Shane and Logan Allen of Mount Ayer, Iowa, J.C. and Luke Long of Pawhuska, Oklahoma, and Chance and Joslyn Masters of Mount Ayer his family dog, Rhonda, and numerous cousins, other relatives, and family friends. Funeral services will be held at the Trinity Christian Church in Decatur, Iowa, on Friday, February 3rd, 2023. That's today at 10.30 a.m. with Matt Remsburg officiating. Burial will be in the Trinity Hill Cemetery in Decatur, Iowa. A visitation will be held at Trinity Christian Church that happened Thursday, 4 to 7 p.m. at the Slade O'Donnell Funeral Home, uh, well, actually, it was at Trinity Christian Church, but the Slate O'Donnell Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Next, we have Mike P. Bullard of Pocahontas. Mike P. Bullard, age 71, of Pocahontas, passed away on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, at his home in Pocahontas, Iowa. Funeral service is 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 4th, 2023, at Resurrection of Our Lord Catholic Church in Pocahontas, Iowa, with Father Craig Collison officiating. There will be no burial at this time. Visitation is 4 to 6 p.m. Friday, February 3rd at Powers Funeral Home in Pocahontas, Iowa. That's today. Powers Funeral Home in Pocahontas, Iowa, is handling the arrangements for online condolences and obituaries. You can visit www.powersfh.net. From there we go to Alice A. Flattery. Alice A. Flattery, age 75, of Fort Dodge, passed away Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, at Friendship Haven. A massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February 6th, at Holy Trinity Church with Monsignor Kevin McCoy officiating. Burial will follow in the Corpus Christi Cemetery. A visitation will be on Sunday from 2 to 5 p.m. at the church. The Lawfersweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Finally, we have Ronald Tilgis of Rodman. A massive Christian burial is at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 4th, 2023, at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church in West Bend. Visitation is 5.30 to 7 p.m. Friday at the church. Lentz Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. We have some death announcements from the Lawfersweiler Funeral Home, located at 307 South 307 South 12th Street in Fort Dodge. 
Their phone number, 515-576-3156. The first for Keith L. Frieseth, age 81. Funeral Saturday, 11 a.m. at St. Olaf Lutheran Church. Visitation is Friday, 4 to 7 p.m. at the Lawford Spiler Funeral Home. From there, Alice A. Flaudry, age 75. We read her obituary. Funeral Monday, 10.30 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church. Visitation is Sunday from 2 to 5 p.m. at Holy Trinity Church. And then finally, Ronnie F. Lemon, age 85, celebration of life at a later date. Before we uh, jump into the sports section, I'm going to read you one more AP story, international story. Russia said eyeing eastern Ukraine push, Kiev targets graft. This is on page five. Dateline Kiev, Ukraine. It's an AP story. Russia is mustering its military might in the Luhansk region of Ukraine, officials said Wednesday. And what Kiev suspects is preparation for an offensive as the first anniversary of Moscow's invasion approaches. Also Wednesday, President Vladimir Zelensky's government continued its crackdown on alleged corruption with the dismissal of several high-ranking officials, prominent lawmaker David Erekamia said. Zelensky was elected in 2019 on an anti-establishment and anti-corruption platform in a country long gripped by graft. The latest allegations come as Western allies are channeling billions of dollars to help Kiev fight Moscow and as the Ukrainian government is introducing reforms so it can potentially join the European Union one day. Ukraine's security service said on the Telegram messaging app that an operation on Wednesday targeted corrupt officials who undermine the country's economy and the stable functioning of the defense industrial complex. It identified one as a former defense ministry official accused of embezzling state funds through the purchase of nearly 3,000 bulletproof vests that would inadequately protect Ukrainian soldiers. Summing up the day's focus on fighting corruption, Zelensky declared in his nightly video address Wednesday, we will not allow anyone to weaken our state. On the battlefront, a Russian missile destroyed an apartment building and damaged seven others in the eastern Donetsk provincial city of Kramastork late Wednesday, killing at least three people and wounding at least 20, police said. Rescuers were searching the rubble for uh, other victims. Russia has frequently attacked apartment buildings during the war, causing civilian casualties, although the Kremlin often denies such reports. We move on now to the sports section here in the Fort Dodge Messenger for the Thursday edition. Headline story, Girl Power. Ross, Poulos, Brown, Benedict look for Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Glory. Fort Dodge State qualifiers from left to right are Macy Brown, Maddie Pulis, Alexis Ross, and Maria Benedict. The girls' state tournament will be Thursday and Friday in Coralville inside the Extreme Arena. It's talking about wrestling. Our first story, Fort Dodge Senior aims for historic ending. This is written by Chris Johnson. Alexis Ross has been the pinnacle of Fort Dodge girls' wrestling. When she was four years old, she began the trips to meets around the state, and once she was able to hit the mat, she was hooked. Now as a senior, the Dodger will look to repeat as state champion. It feels great to go back for one last year and aim to bring back another state title, Ross said. I'm all 
so really excited for my teammates and excited that they get to have this experience. And I can show them the ropes for, of everything for their first year and my last. What a career, said Ford Dodge head coach John Koenig. Ever since freshman year, Alexis has had the goal to win a state title. She was close as a freshman and as a sophomore. She now wants to finish with two titles. It's been a steady climb to the top of the podium, starting at third as a freshman, a silver medalist as a sophomore, and a state champion as a senior. She enters the 135-pound class as the top seed with a 32-2 record. She is 87-5 in her career. It was so special last year to have her dad, Andre, there, Koenig said. It was a great experience to win that gold. She was always around it as a kid, and then when it was her turn, she was hooked. Ross will join three of her teammates in the first-ever Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union-sanctioned girls tournament. Wrestling alongside the senior will be freshman Maria Benedict, 125 pounds, junior Macy Brown, 130, and junior Maddie Pullis, 155 pounds. The state tournament will run Thursday and Friday in Coralville inside the Extreme Arena. Benedict, with a 26-14 record, wrestled for Koenig as an 8th grader at the Fort Dodge Middle School a year ago. Now she is a determined freshman. Mariah was super green in middle school, but has a lot of determination and toughness, Koenig said. She had some success last year and was still wrestling against the boys. Now she is on an even playing field, and there is no place to go but to climb. She enters the tournament as a super regional runner-up. I've been wrestling for two years, Benedict said. Last year I went... 0-2 at state, and this year I just had this mindset that I have to do better. This is my year. Brown, with a 19-15 record, who was part of Fort Dodge's state softball championship, just decided to go out for wrestling this year and has already had success. The mindset for Macy was, what do you have to lose, Koenig said. I told her she was a good athlete and she needs to use that athletic ability. Poulos, at a 16-6 record, who is a Webster City junior, wrestled for the Lynx last season, but joined the Dodger program this season. It's exciting because I'm the first one to qualify at Webster City, Poulos said. I grew up with wrestling. My whole family wrestles. All of my cousins, girls included, all wrestle. I've been around it my whole life, so it made sense. She enters the field as a super regional champion and is the 13th seed. Maddie didn't get a whole lot of matches last year, but is really building a resume, Koenig said. She has gained some great experiences that young wrestlers look for. In the first season, in the Dodger Halls, Koenig is pleased with the season. It's been a great year, said Fort Dodge head coach John Koenig. After our first set of scrambles, knowing we could qualify eight, I was pretty excited we could get a lot through. Then when it got moved to four, I knew it was going to be tough. I just want to do it the right way. I'm learning as I go, writing stuff down in my book. I want to thank the Booster Club for this year for purchasing our uniforms. We had solid numbers all year and never dipped below 10. New Endeavor leads to state birth for Brown. This is a Chris Johnson story. 
Macy Brown wanted to test herself. She wanted to go outside of her comfort zone. The Fort Dodge Jr. has found success on the softball team and wanted to be part of something else. I wanted to participate in another successful program, Brown said, but I also wanted to try out a new and different environment than what I was used to. I was ready to try something new and meet new people who were also doing something new. In the first season of Sanctioned Girls Wrestling, Brown joined the new adventure with one of her softball teammates, Lucy Porter. Lucy had a huge role in pushing me to go out for wrestling because we both were new blood and we each uh, had each other back in and out no matter what happened, Brown said. The people, environment, and coaches are super welcoming. I gained several lifelong friendships through the sport all while succeeding together. On her rookie voyage, Brown is now a state qualifier. Through grit and determination, down 9 to nothing, Brown reversed her opponent and fortune by recording a fall and earning a state tournament bid. Within a couple weeks, I was addicted to the sport and I fell in love with it, all because of the girls that surrounded me and my amazing coaches, Brown said. The drive and grit was nonstop, but it became an addiction. If I was told at the beginning of the season I would be going to state, I would die laughing, Brown said. To think I'm now going to state is crazy. It truly doesn't feel like it. Even with the struggles of learning a sport, Brown was bound and determined to make it a successful one. To think I'm now going to state is crazy, Brown said. It truly doesn't feel like it. This whole season, I've drove through, match by match, but never did I think the drive would get me here. It's an absolute honor, and I'm here to enjoy every second of it. From there we go to Stanick enjoying time on mat with Cougar teammates. Southeast Valley Senior is state qualifier for MNW. This written by Chris Johnson. Maddie Stanick wanted a do-over, a chance at a fresh start. The Southeast Valley senior found her place on the mat with the Manson Northwest Webster program. I've had a really great experience wrestling for Manson, Stanick said. I know Southeast Valley doesn't currently have a team, so I am grateful that I still got the opportunity to wrestle this year. The Manson girls are such a great group, and I'm glad that I got to spend my final year with them. Stanick competed with the boys' team last year, but once girls' wrestling was sanctioned, she knew it was her chance to end the way she wanted to. What made me want to go out was last year. I wrestled with the boys for a little bit, but I didn't feel like it was my place, Stanick said. I knew once girls' wrestling was sanctioned, there would be more interest and the girls could hit the mats at full force. I, of course, also wanted a redo for my junior year because being with the boys a little bit, which wasn't fully taken advantage of. Coach Thoma and Manson's athletic director, Mr. Mine, was also really welcoming, and I felt like it would be a great place for the Southeast Valley girls to go to grow. Stanick's redo was a great finish, as the junior qualified for the first ever Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Tournament. Qualifying for state definitely felt unreal, and it still hasn't hit me that I've made history for my school and wrestling program, Stanick said. I feel like that's a shared emotion felt by all of the qualifiers. 
I know a few of the younger Southeast Valley girls look up to us, and I want to show them that, hey, you're capable of more than you think. If you told me on the first day of practice this year that I would have been wrestling at state, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Stanick, with an 11-8 record, will be the 29th seed at 235 pounds. She will be joined by teammates Kyle Egley, 25-4 at 115 pounds, and Lucy Conan, 17-10 at 140. Egley and Conan are the 14th and 29th seeds at their weights. For Stanick to finish at the Extreme Arena took a lot of work and was a fitting finish. It means a lot for me to be at state, and I know I wouldn't have done it without my coaches, teammates, and my parents, Stanick said. I also have to give credit to my teammates who show up and work hard every day. It just goes to show that you shouldn't doubt yourself and to trust the process and what your coaches throw at you. So I am extremely thankful and ready to hit the mats. In other state news on page 14, fourth state trip for Humboldt's beers. Four Wildcats will compete at first Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State event. That's written by Chris Johnson. Bailey Beers has been around wrestling her entire life. So when Chad Beeman started the Humboldt Girls Wrestling program four years ago, Beers was ready to go. In her final season as a Wildcat, the senior will take part in her fourth state meet, first as a qualifier in the sanctioned sport. I've been wrestling for four years since the very first girls team at Humboldt, Beers said. I have always been around wrestling due to my brother and thought I might as well try it since that's what I grew up around. Beers, 130 pounds, who is the 12th seed at 130 pounds, will be joined by teammates Sophia Harris, 110, Claire Wider, 135, and Brooklyn Robinson, 190 pounds. Andy Newell, who is in his second season as head coach, is ready to see what the girls have in their first sanctioned tournament. It's really exciting to have a sanctioned tournament, Newell said. The last few years have been awesome to experience, but it's extremely special now that it's sanctioned. Humboldt has been a little ahead of the slope when it comes to girls wrestling, as they have had a solid number of females in the program. We had good numbers when Chad started it four years ago, so we were ahead of the curve. We have over 50 girls from middle school to high school. I think one of the biggest things for our numbers has been the girls recruiting their friends and getting underclassmen to try it. I think the juniors and seniors have really focused on recruiting the girls and getting them to stay out. Beers, with a 22-5 record, enters the state tournament as a super regional champion. She went through the field with three falls. I've been to state all of the years I've been wrestling, and I'm really excited to see where this year takes me with it, Beers said. Not everyone can say they went to state all four years, so I think that's pretty cool that I'm able to say that. Newell has seen Beers step into a leadership role. We were talking a week ago, and she has really stepped into that leadership role, Newell said. She sets the tone and does things the right way. I don't have to correct her a lot, and she does a lot of self-correcting. 
For Harris, with a 22-10 record, her ascent on the wrestling team took a different path. Harris started as the team manager and then eventually a member of the team. So Sophia was on the wrestling team because of her sister Mia, and she was a manager, Newell said. One day she came to me and asked if she could practice with the girls after her managerial duties. Then she started competing. She struggled at one of the meets, and then she came on. She has a great work ethic and off the mat, on and off the mat. Whitert, with a 17-16 and 16 record, also came from a wrestling family as her brother Joe wrestled for the Wildcats. Claire has been around the sport, Newell said. She started when she was a freshman and has a natural ability. She is a silent leader. Robinson, with a 22-11 and 11 record, enters as a super regional runner-up. The sophomore suffered a broken ankle last season, or she would have been a two-time participant. She has found the spot that fits her well, Newell said. There is a big gap from 190 to 235, and she is now down where it suits her well. Missing from this year's lineup is junior Riley Coyle, who was a state silver medalist a year ago. Coyle suffered a torn ACL and broken ankle this season. She is three weeks post-ACL surgery, Newell said. I've been talking to her, and she is making headway. She is chomping at the bit to get back here. The state tournament is Thursday and Friday at the Coralville inside at Coralville inside the Extreme Arena. Action begins on Thursday at 9 a.m. And began Thursday at 9 a.m., I should correct. If you're listening to this on Friday morning, this is the Fort Dodge Messenger reading here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We do have some time left. Let's take a look at some additional stories here. Stocks hit summer highs as Fed sees progress on inflation. Dateline New York, this is an AP story. Wall Street climbed Wednesday to its best level since the summer following the latest hike to interest rates by the Federal Reserve, which said it's finally seeing improvements in inflation. The S&P 500 rallied back from an early 1% loss to rise 1% after Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the economy is on the path toward getting inflation lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average erased a drop of 500 points to rise 6, while the Nasdaq Composite jumped 2%. As expected, the Fed raised its benchmark interest rate by 0.25 percentage points to its highest level since late 2007. It's the smallest such increase in the Fed's blizzard of rate hikes since March. What's more important for markets is where interest rates are heading next. Much of Wall Street is hoping that cooling inflation since the summertime means the Fed may raise rates just a bit more before taking a pause and then possibly cutting rates toward the end of the year. Rate cuts can ease pressure on the economy and juiced investment prices. The Fed's Powell did reiterate Wednesday that ongoing increases in interest rates will be needed to bring inflation down to the Fed's target level, and he said it was still way too early to declare victory over inflation. But he also said, we can now say, I think for the first time, that the disinflationary process has started. That got Wall Street thinking about a future with no more rate increases. He had the opportunity to use his voice to tamp down market expectations, and he didn't do it, said Katie Nixon, a chief investment officer at Northern Trust Wealth Management. Anyone that had taken a bet that the Fed was going to come out hard on financial positions lost that bet. 
Higher interest rates try to snuff out inflation by slowing the economy and dragging on prices for stocks and other investments. The Fed has already pulled its key overnight rate to its highest level since 2007 at a range of 4.50% to 4.75%, up from virtually zero earlier this year. At stake is the economy, which may many investors see likely heading down one of two paths, either a relatively short and shallow recession or a much deeper and more painful one. Building hopes for the former helped stocks rally through January to a strong start of the year. Powell indicated he's on the more optimistic side. My base case is that the economy can return to 2% inflation without a really significant downturn or really big increase in unemployment, he said. He also said he did not foresee any rate cuts this year. Others in the market are not as optimistic. A third pathway for the economy is also possible, said Rich Weiss, senior vice president at American Century Investments, one that happened during the 1970s where inflation reignited after the Federal Reserve let up on interest rates too soon. Well, in our waning minutes here, we've read most of this paper. The Fort Dodge Messenger will read you one last column. It is called Dear Annie. And the question and Subject, struggling to rebuild family after ugly divorce. Dear Annie, at the end of 2015, I decided to end my marriage of 30 years. My ex made the divorce very long and expensive, and he tried to financially destroy me in retribution. He involved our daughter and son and turned them against me. I have tried from the beginning to maintain my relationship with my kids, but they quickly shut me out of their lives. They haven't responded to texts, phone calls, or voicemails, hundreds of them over the years. I was extremely close with them, and I was uh, shocked that they had taken sides and allowed themselves to be dragged into a very ugly divorce. From the beginning, I moved into our second home in another state, 500 miles away, and because of the way things went, I had to make it my permanent home. My ex threatened me and stalked me for years ever since I left. He was arrested once. I had to get a restraining order. He had a warrant out for his arrest in my state, and he crashed our daughter's car while he was here trying to follow and terrify me. He had two credit cards in my name, which he ran up to $16,000 that I had to pay, and much, much more. Throughout this time, my son got engaged, married, and had a baby. He excluded me and everyone from my side of the family through all of this. His wife blocked me on social media. My daughter still won't speak with me either. I felt that I was disposable and became severely depressed. I have been seeing a therapist for years trying to build a life for myself without my kids and my grandson. Although I have made a ton of progress, I'm still not sure who I am without them. My kids were my world, and now I am just a broken mom. Any advice to regain our relationship that maybe I haven't tried yet? Thank you. That written by Still Sad. Well, Amy writes, Dear Still Sad, with the help of your therapist, try to figure out why your children have cut you out of their lives. Did they have a difficult childhood? Do they blame you for the divorce? Whether it's fair or not, it is unlikely that your children cut you out for no reason at all. I would then write a letter to each of your children explaining how much you love them, how desperately you want to be a part of their lives, and, if applicable, how sincerely you apologize for any trauma they endured in the past. Do not bring up their father. Your children do not need to witness any more drama between their parents. 
If they do not respond to such an outreach, then I'm afraid there isn't much more you can do. You cannot, in any healthy capacity, force your way into somebody's life. It is important that you focus on the future, not the past, and integrate yourself into your new community, and it should be immensely encouraging to you that you have already made a ton of progress. That written by uh, Annie. There you go. And that concludes our reading of the Ford Dodge Messenger for Thursday, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, as brought to you here on the morning of Friday, February 3rd. Hope you're having a great start to your day, everyone. If you're listening on the network, the Mason City Globe Gazette is up next. I'm your reader today. My name is Andrew Haupt filling in. Thank you so much for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a nice day and straight ahead.